Take your Bible, if you would, and join me first in Matthew chapter 28. And then in just a few moments, we will find ourselves in Acts chapter 2. First, we'll be in Matthew chapter 28. And then momentarily, we will be in Acts chapter number 2. Do you know, it's somewhat surprising to receive service that is equal to the promise. Okay, how many of you have ever been promised something before regarding some aspect of service only to be, you know, sadly disappointed? Now, this has happened, obviously, over the course of a lot of years to all of us where someone said, no, 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 I'll take care of it, I promise. And then there is no making good on the promise. So when someone says, this is what I'm going to do, and then they actually do, what they said they were going to do, it stands out to us as something commendable. It could be even the smallest of things. Hey, I told you I was going to send you that address. Or I, I mentioned this and that I was going to follow up with. And when someone actually does, we stand back with some kind of amazement, even over the simple things, let alone the more important things. Notice what the Bible records for us in Matthew chapter 28, beginning in verse number one. In the end of the Sabbath, as it began to dawn toward the first day of the week, came Mary Magdalene and the other Mary to see the sepulcher. And behold, there was a great earthquake for the angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone from the door and sat upon it. His countenance was like lightning, his raiment white as snow. And for fear of him, the keepers did shake and became as dead men. And the angel answered and said unto the women, Fear not, for I know that ye seek Jesus, which was crucified. He is not here, for he is risen as he said. Come see the place where the Lord lay. Now today, there are going to be countless sermons preached on this passage of scripture and many throughout scripture that are that are just like it in fact sermons have been preached for some 2,000 plus years regarding the resurrection of Jesus Christ now we do it over and over again in fact every week there is some proclamation as we gather on the first day of the week the day of Christ's resurrection to celebrate the same and so every week, but, but certainly on Resurrection Sunday, Easter Sunday, passages are preached over and over and over. So now year after year, decade after decade, century after century, and so on, there have been sermons powerfully preached regarding the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and rightfully so. But if we could roll back the record of time and go back to the first sermon that was preached following the resurrection of Jesus Christ. What would we discover from the first sermon? So let's roll back the time. Let's go to Acts chapter 2 and let's see Peter's first sermon preached and really the first sermon preached following the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, hey, let me ask you a question. How many of you have ever preached a sermon before in a church setting? How many of you have ever preached a sermon? Raise your hand. Okay, there's lots of you. How many of you have ever preached a sermon to your husband before? 
a few of you as well. Okay, so how many of you remember, if you've ever preached a sermon in church before, how many of you also remember the first sermon you ever preached? How many of you remember your first sermon? Okay. Dr. Zach, you remember your first sermon? And, and you're, you're smiling with, with some, I don't know, I perceive it as somewhat uh, embarrassment, which I suppose many of us would be the same. Now, this was my first real sermon. I had spoken in junior church and things like that, but my first real sermon was a sermon that I preached as an ensemble leader. And Dr. Zacharias was actually present when I preached my first sermon. Now, when Peter preached his first sermon, there were about 3,000 people added to the church. When I preached my first sermon, about 30 people needed to be helped back to the church, okay? It was, it was quite uh, memorable, at least for me. I know my points. I know that I had practiced that sermon. But boy, I changed those points all around. I preached things. I, I don't know what I preached, but, but it, was not, um, it was not one of those glorious moments. I'm not certain that I've had one of those glorious moments since then, but I, I certainly hope I have improved somewhat from the preaching of my first. Peter's first sermon it's actually quite remarkable. And it is an evidence that the Holy Spirit's power had been given. Let's look in on Peter's first sermon found in Acts chapter 2. We're going to start in verse number 22 and pick up his sermon from there. Acts chapter 2 beginning in verse number 22. Now here's what we're about to see. We're about to see that Peter uses masterfully... The evidence, the proof, if you will, of Christ's resurrection. He realizes, I don't have a message to preach if Christ be not risen from the dead. Acts chapter 2, beginning in verse number 22. Ye men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man approved of God among you by miracles and wonders and signs, which God did by him in the midst of you, as ye yourselves also know, him being delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God, ye have taken and by wicked hands have crucified and slain, whom God hath raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be holden of it. Verse 25, for David speaketh concerning him, I foresaw the Lord always before my face, for he is on my right hand that I should not be moved. Therefore did my heart rejoice and my tongue was glad. Moreover, also my flesh shall rest in hope because thou wilt not leave my soul in hell. Neither wilt thou suffer thine holy one to see corruption. Thou hast made known to me the ways of life. Thou shalt make me full of joy with thy countenance. Men and brethren, let me speak freely unto you of the patriarch David that is both dead and buried and his sepulcher is with us unto this day. Therefore, being a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that of the fruit of his loins, according to the flesh, he would raise up Christ to sit on his throne. He, seeing this before, spake of the resurrection of Christ that his soul was not left in hell, 
neither his flesh did see corruption. This Jesus hath God raised up, whereof we all are witnesses. Now today, what I'd like us to do is I would like us to notice the evidence, the proof that is being presented in this masterful first sermon of the Apostle Peter. Okay, let's start by looking at this first evidence, this first proof that the Apostle Peter leaves for us in this sermon. And the first thing we see is, is rather simple, but don't miss it. I mean, in a sense, we might say, wow, it's, it's powerful in its simplicity. The first evidence that the Apostle Peter uses here is the proof of his person. The proof of his person. You say, well, what do you mean by that? Okay, look again at verse number 22, just the first few words. Ye men of Israel, hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth. Now, now pause right there. Peter refers to Jesus as Jesus of Nazareth. It's a very natural, it's a very, in a sense, a human way to refer to an actual literal person. For example, I am Jeff Redland of Adrian, Michigan. He says Jesus of Nazareth, and they're going to know, oh, this is the region of Galilee. So, so at times I start to reference things about my own personal history. I went to Lincoln Elementary School. I lived on Michigan Avenue. I rode my bike to Ernie's Market to get milk for my mom or bread if she sent me to the store. If I had 20 cents in my pocket, I would ride down to Rexall Drugstore and come away with an actual literal little paper bag full of candy. I rode my bike or no, 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 I had to walk to Smith's Cyclery when I needed a bike tire patch for my bicycle. These are all real places where I grew up. And when I start to mention these, inevitably someone comes up and says, hey, listen, I grew up in Michigan. I know exactly where you're talking about. In fact, I used to go to Smith's Cyclery as well, or I know right where Ernie's Market is, or I went to Lincoln Elementary School. I was talking about Adrian, Michigan, this was a couple of years ago from this pulpit. And I got a letter in the mail from someone who watches this program. And they sent me pictures of my grandfather's first barber shop. A place that my grandfather, Barney Weatherman, a place that he bought, it was, it was an old shell of a building that the military had used. And they said, I know your grandfather. And this was the place where he, listen, all of this kind of conversation is conjured up when a person says Jesus of Nazareth. We're talking about a real person who has a real history, who walked down real paths, who did real business, who had real family. And we're talking about a real person, Jesus the Christ. You know, later in the book of Acts, Paul's going to be preaching to, uh, to basically three people. Now, there were others in attendance, but the three that had everybody's attention was a guy that was a, 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 basically a Roman governor. His name's Festus. And then he's also preaching to a guy that had everybody's attention, and that is King Agrippa. And then his daughter, Bernice, is there as well. Now, now Paul is actually at this time incarcerated. He's a prisoner of Rome. But Paul's been looking forward to an opportunity to state his case in front of any who would listen. And he's been looking forward to this day. So Agrippa says to Festus, hey, I'd like to hear it myself. And Festus says, I'll make it happen. 
And it starts to unfold before us in Acts chapter 26. Listen as I start reading in verse number 22. And notice again how masterfully the Apostle Paul brings some common knowledge into this, this discourse, this sermon, if you will. Verse number 22, Acts chapter 26. Having therefore obtained help of God, I continue unto this day, Paul speaking, witnessing both to small and great, saying none other things than those things which the prophets and Moses did say should come, that Christ should suffer, that he should be the first that should rise from the dead and should show light unto the people and to the Gentiles. And as he thus spake for himself, Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, thou art beside thyself. Much learning doth make thee mad. Now, now Festus tries to add some humor into a very serious discourse. And so he basically interrupts Paul, demonstrating, I think, to everyone there his own ignorance. Paul! <laughs> Paul, you're crazy! <laughs> uh oh, you're a wise man, but a lot of learning has driven you mad. Now, look at how the Apostle Paul responds to this. But he said very directly, I am not mad, most noble Festus, but speak forth the words of truth and soberness. And now he turns from Festus. He says, I'm not mad, Festus. In fact, these things are things that are clearly known. And then he turns his attention from Festus and he looks directly at King Agrippa. And notice what he does to the king. Verse number 26. For the king knoweth of these things before whom I speak freely. The king knows what I'm talking about. He goes on, before whom I speak freely, for I am persuaded that, listen, none of these things are hidden from him, for this thing was not done in a corner. King Agrippa, believest thou the prophets? I know that thou believest. And now look at this response. We don't know how it was said. There certainly could have been some hint or tone of sarcasm, but we don't get any sense that that is the case. Do you know the sense that I get from this passage? After Festus just showed himself being somewhat ignorant of that which everyone knew, the king included. And now the apostle Paul says, listen, you know this king, you know what I'm speaking of. Do you believe the prophets? I know that you believe the prophets. What say you, King Agrippa? And the king, I think, in a serious and maybe almost inaudible tone says, Paul, almost thou persuadest me to be a Christian. What is Paul drawing on that so grips the attention of a king? Paul is drawing upon those things that the king knew well of. This is not something that's done in some remote corner. It's not something that just a few persons or one person knows about. These are things that were broadly understood. Who is this person? This is Jesus of Nazareth. And you know all about him. We say all this to acknowledge that Jesus is a recognized public figure. These things are not done in secret. People knew him. He was in their presence. He was not some obscure Jewish figure of no consequence. For example, there are people here that we know 
Now I've, I've referenced him already, but we know Dr. Zacharias. And even if Dr. Zacharias was not in the service this morning, you might be newer here. And I would say, now you know Dr. Zach, right? And you might say, now who is that? And I'd say, he's the guy who leads singing for us every Sunday. And you'd say, oh yeah, I know him. Do you know this Jesus of Nazareth was a person that was commonly understood. He is a known figure. This is the case with Jesus. The people to whom Peter is preaching would have known something. Do you know what else they knew? Not only of his person, they also knew of his power. We have the proof of his person, but let's go beyond that just a little bit. These people had the, this proof of his power. Look again in your Bible, Acts chapter 2. Look down again at verse number 22. We'll read just a little bit further. A man approved of God among you by miracles and wonders and signs. Miracles and wonders and signs which God did by him in the midst of you, as ye yourselves also know. Did you get what he just says again? He says, okay, miracles and wonders and signs. There's this plethora of evidence as to who is this person, Jesus Christ. And then he says, and these are things that he did in the midst of you. You know this yourself. There were basically three periods of miracles throughout scripture. Now, these are not exclusive periods, but they are primary periods. So we have the, the first period of miracles that really took place with Moses and with Joshua. And, and miracles like, well, we saw these incredible parting of the Red Sea, water from the rock kind of miracles. Well, then we, we have this kind of silent time. And we get to the, the, the day of Elijah and Elisha. And again, miracles seem to abound. They seem to be more common. And then we have these, these quiet years. And then we have a third period where miracles were very pronounced. And they were miracles and signs and wonders. And that's during the time of Jesus and the disciples, the apostles. Now, again, these aren't exclusive times. We have, we have times like with Daniel and the, the three Hebrew children. We know there are other times where there were miracles, but these are primary times of miracles. In fact, Jesus invited his most severe critics to evaluate him based on the evidence of his miracles. His critics, those people who said, well, we choose not to believe. Okay, listen, you don't have to believe me, but let's back up just a little bit and believe me for the very work's sake. In John chapter 10, verse 37, I, if I do not the works of my father, believe me not. And Jesus lays it right out there. He says, hey, listen, okay, if I'm not doing the work of God, my father, then don't believe me. But he goes on and he says, verse number 38, John chapter 10. But if I do, though ye believe not me, believe the works that ye may know and believe that the Father is in me and I in him. Immediately following this, we, John chapter 10, he just has this dialogue with Pharisees, with doubters. Then we get to John chapter 11. Do you remember what happens in John chapter 11? His friend fell ill. Well, he doesn't respond immediately. Finally, he gets there and he finds that Lazarus has been dead for how many days? Four days. 
And who is the resurrection and the life? Well, it's Jesus. And he says Lazarus' name and he calls him forth, raising him from the dead. What's the response of people? Listen, wouldn't you and I conclude that if we were having a funeral service here today, and there's a body that has been laying in front of us in state, and that person's been dead for four days, should we assume that if that body was risen from the dead by the powerful word of Almighty God, should we conclude that everyone who witnessed that would at that moment believe that that was a miracle from God? Should we assume that that would take place? You know, we might assume that, but that would not be necessarily a safe assumption. Do you notice what happens after Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead? John chapter 12, listen to verse number 17, beginning in verse 17. The people therefore that was with him when he called Lazarus out of the grave and raised him from the dead bear record. In other words, this is an established fact. The people that were there, oh yeah, I was there when they bear record. This is not just I heard about, no, 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 I'm an eyewitness, I bear record. Verse number 18, for this cause, the people also met him for that they heard that he had done this miracle. The Pharisees therefore said among themselves, perceive ye how we prevail nothing. Behold, the world is gone after him. Now I just jumped to John chapter 12. Um, some perceptive people in here may have caught that. But would you allow me, because we started this whole message backing up the role of history, would you allow me to finish John chapter 11? Because this is going to connect something with Lazarus. Let me read this passage again. Remember, they bear witness that Lazarus rose from the dead. Verse number 45, John chapter 11. Then many of the Jews which came to Mary and had seen the things which Jesus did, believed on him. Verse 46, but some of them went their ways to the Pharisees and told them what things Jesus had done. Then gathered the chief priests and the Pharisees a council and said, what do we? For this man doeth many miracles. Let me ask you, did the Pharisees believe that Jesus was Messiah? Yes or no? And the answer is no. Did the Pharisees believe that Jesus did many miracles, yes or no? And the answer is they were undeniable. The, the miracles of Jesus, the Pharisees can't say that never happened. It doesn't work because they knew that they did. Interestingly enough, if you want to talk about the proof of who is Jesus Christ, ask the Pharisees. Did he do miracles? Did he do the works of the Father? And the Pharisees' answer to that would be, yes, he did do miracles. But we're still not going to acknowledge that he is Messiah. Now John chapter 12, because we see again this testimony of the power of Jesus. John chapter 12, beginning in verse number 17. The people therefore that was with him when he called Lazarus out of his grave, raised him from the dead, bear record. For this cause the people also met him for they had heard that he had done this miracle. The Pharisees therefore said among themselves, perceive ye how we prevail nothing? Behold, the world is gone after him. The Pharisees understand in this ongoing fashion 
Jesus Christ is working miracles. This is not just the proof of his person. Oh, Jesus of Nazareth. Yeah, we know, we know exactly where he grew up. We know all about him, a real person. But we also have the proof of his power. Go a little bit further beyond that. Look at verse number 25 in Acts chapter 2. And here we're going to see the proof of his prophecies. The proof of his prophecies. Verse number 25. Peter's now going to introduce what we're going to call some scriptural support into his sermon. Verse number 25. For David speaketh concerning him, I foresaw the Lord always before my face, for he is on my right hand that I should not be moved. Therefore did my heart rejoice, my tongue was glad, more also my flesh shall rest in hope. Now listen to this. Because thou wilt not leave my soul in hell, neither wilt thou suffer thine holy one to see corruption. Hey, is David speaking about himself there? Your Bible probably has holy one capitalized. Is David saying right now, I'm the holy one and my body will never see corruption? Or is David speaking about something else? Look a little bit further. Verse number 28. Thou hast made known to me the ways of life. Thou shalt make me full of joy with thy countenance. Do you know, David is being quoted here from Psalm chapter 16. We won't read the whole Psalm, but listen to verses 10 and 11. For thou wilt not leave my soul in hell, neither wilt thou suffer thine holy one to see corruption. Now, Peter starts to turn, he uses, okay, he quotes David, and now look at how he uses this in front of the people that he's preaching to. Look at verse number 29 in Acts chapter 2. He inserts now, men and brethren, let me speak freely unto you of the patriarch David that is both dead and buried and his sepulcher is with us unto this day. He says, hey, listen, everybody knows David's dead and gone. In fact, we all know where his sepulcher is. If we wanted to walk over and look at, pay respects to David, we all could do that right now. And were we so bold, Peter's implying, to as actually remove the place to which he is buried, we would find the corrupted bones of David buried in his sepulcher. So Peter's making a pretty strong point. David wasn't speaking about himself. David is speaking about one to come. Look a little bit further in this passage. Verse number 30. Therefore, being a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that of the fruit of his loins, according to the flesh, he would raise up Christ to sit on his throne. He, seeing this before, spake of the resurrection of Christ, that his soul was not left in hell, neither his flesh, that is the flesh of Christ, neither his flesh did see corruption. You know, we see a couple things. First of all, we see that Peter knows scripture and he begins to build this scriptural case for his claims in this sermon. And he's not claiming that he's the holy one and that he would never see corruption. Peter recognizes and he says, David's tomb is here, but Jesus' tomb is empty. This is one of the many Old Testament prophecies regarding Christ, his death, 
his burial and his resurrection. It's not an isolated place. In fact, if we were to be reading in Psalms, you you would read in Psalm chapter 16 about Christ and his body not seeing corruption. You'd go to chapter 18 and then you'd see again these words that could be the words of Christ regarding his resurrection. If you go to Psalm chapter 22, you see with exacting detail the crucifixion explained before crucifixion was ever invented. Let let me read a couple of the passages from Psalm chapter 22. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Why Why art thou so far from helping me and from the words of my roaring? As soon as we open the pages and read the words of this Psalm, things start to hearken to our own mind saying, I've heard those words before. We go down to verse number seven. All they that see me laugh me to scorn. They shoot out the lip. They shake their head saying, he trusted in the Lord that he would deliver him. Let him deliver him seeing he delighted in him. We go down to verse number 14 in Psalm 22 and we read, I am poured out like water and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted in the midst of my bowels. My strength is dried up like a potsherd. My tongue cleaveth to my jaws. Thou hast brought me into the dust of death. For dogs have compassed me. The assembly of the wicked have enclosed me. Listen to this. They pierced my hands and my feet. I may tell all my bones. They look and stare upon me. Listen to verse 18. They part my garments among them and cast lots upon my vesture. Do you know what this is? This is one of the many proofs of prophecy that are specifically related to the person of Jesus Christ. What do we have in this passage of scripture? Well, we have the proof of his person, the proof of his power, the proof of his prophecies. But look a little bit further in this passage. Look down next at the proof of his presence. In verse number 32, the Bible says it this way. This Jesus hath God raised up, whereof we all are witnesses. Have you ever used the expression before? Hey, I wouldn't have believed it unless I would have seen it with my own eyes. Oh, listen. I I just don't know that I would have believed it unless I saw it with my own two eyes. And do you know what he's saying here, the Apostle Peter? He's saying this is the one that God raised up and we've seen it with our own eyes. The sentiment is is reiterated again, uh, 2 Peter chapter 1 verse 16. For we have not followed cunningly devised fables... When we made known unto you the power concerning our Lord Jesus Christ, but were eyewitnesses of his majesty. This is exactly the way the book of Luke um, begins with the following. Verse number, Acts chapter, the, the book that Luke wrote, Acts chapter 1 verse 3. To whom also he showed himself alive after his passion by many infallible proofs being seen of them 40 days and speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. The proofs of Christ's resurrection are irrefutable. They couldn't be disputed. Some wouldn't take the eyewitness testimony of others. You and I don't have that today. We can't speak to a person who was actually there. We take the witness, we take the collective evidence of many and we say hmm 
Is that true? There was one even in Jesus' day that didn't take the eyewitness accounts of others. Today, we have given him somewhat of a nickname. His name today for us is Doubting Thomas. The, the, the assembled disciples had seen him, but Thomas was not there. And Thomas said, except I shall see in his hands. He's being very specific. The print of nails and put my finger into the print of the nails and thrust my hand into his side. I will not believe. And after eight days, again, the disciples and Thomas were with them. Then came Jesus, the doors being shut and stood in the midst and said, peace be unto you. Then saith he to Thomas, reach hither thy finger and behold my hands. And reach hither thy hand and thrust it into my side. And be not faithless but believing. And Thomas answered and said unto him, my Lord and my God. Now notice what Jesus says to people like you and me. This is not just for Thomas now. This is for you in this day, in this year, for this time. Jesus goes on and he says, Thomas, because thou hast seen me, thou hast believed. Blessed are they that have not seen and yet have believed. Do you know what we have? We have today the record, the proof of his presence. And might I conclude today by saying that we have something even more that we hold on to every day. And that is the proof of his promise. We have the proof of his person, his power, his prophecies. But we have the proof of his promise. Acts chapter 2 verse 24. Whom God hath raised up, having loosed the pains of death. Because it was not possible that he should be holden of it. Let me ask you the question. Why was it not possible that the grave should hold him? I'll tell you why. Because Jesus had promised. Early in his ministry, Jesus began to speak of his resurrection. And he's doing so in so many ways that looking back, it couldn't be misunderstood. Jesus answered in John chapter 2, verse number 19. Jesus said, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. Do you know that statement wasn't lost even on his doubters. What was it that his detractors said at the foot of the cross as Jesus hangs there? What what is it that they recall? They'd heard the words of Jesus. What is it that they now say in mocking tone? Mark chapter 15 verse 29 And they that passed by railed on him, wagging their heads and saying, Ah, thou that destroyest the temple and buildest it in three days, save thyself and come down from the cross. They need but wait three days. And the temple of which Jesus was referring would be gloriously restored. No one misunderstood what Jesus was saying about his resurrection. He had promised again and again and who was it that understood the hope of his resurrection quite frankly maybe his enemies put more stock in the words of Jesus than did his followers because what is it that the enemies of Jesus use when Jesus now had been crucified and buried they come to him the next day in Matthew chapter 27 verse 62 that followed the the day of preparation, the chief priests, the Pharisees came together unto Pilate saying, Sir, 
We remember that the deceiver said, while he was yet alive, that after three days I will rise again. Command, therefore, that a sepulcher be made sure until the third day, lest his disciples come by night and steal him away and say unto the people, he is risen from the dead. So the last error shall be worse than the first. Pilate said unto them, ye have a watch, go your way. And I love this statement. Make it as sure as you can. Well, they made it as sure as they could, but it was not sure enough. Who was it that understood the proof of his promise? Even his detractors. Jesus said, Jesus promised that after three days, he will rise again. It was back in 1988, actually December 14th, in Armenia, that a terrible earthquake, some almost seven points on the Richter scale, did major devastation in Armenia. Of course, there were countless numbers of people that died. Thousands and thousands of people died. Uh, when the earthquake took place, obviously life was, was happening. People were about the normal events, the everyday occurrences of life. And such was the case for a school that was meeting with school children. When the earthquake took place and buildings began to crumble, a father ran immediately to the place where his son was in school. And of course, when he got there, the school was a heap. It was, it was just a mass of rubble. The, the report that I read in the Armenian Weekly, the post there said that this father begins to himself pull rubble from the classroom that he knew his son to be. Now, visibly speaking, there's no chance the place is literally flattened. But a father begins to just one by one pull stones off. There were different people, the reports are said, that tried to pull him off from a pile of rubble that they understood would reveal only the death of children. Parents would come, there would be serious grieving, and they would go. In fact, different authorities came, and it's reported again that these authorities tried to pull the man away, saying, we will clear the rubble, to which he paid them no attention and continued rock after rock, stone after stone. He did so for 12 hours, for 16, for 24, for 36 hours he continued to labor. And on the 38th hour, he heard the voice of a child. He heard the voice of his son. I think it'd be quite powerful to have taken away the stone that allowed for a boy to call out to his father. And he said to his dad, I knew you would come. You've always promised that you would always be there for me. There's another promise and it wasn't made from a person outside, but a person inside a, a borrowed tomb, the prison, so to speak, of death. There was one who made a promise. You can take and destroy this temple, but in three days, I will rise again, never to die. Do you know Christ made good on his promise to rise again? And if Christ has done the greater, will he not do the lesser for every promise he has made to you? He made another promise to Thomas the doubter. Thomas is there and he's with the others and, and Jesus begins to help them understand, I'm going away. But if I go, 
I will come again and receive you unto myself that where I am, there ye may be also. Thomas saith unto him, Lord, we know not whither thou goest. How can we know the way? And Jesus said, I am the way, the truth and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. Jesus is gone to prepare a place. He made a promise, I will rise again. And he made another promise, I will come again and receive you unto myself that where I am there ye may be also. The question that we close with today is have you availed yourself of that promise? Are you certain today that you will rise again? That though they lay your body someday in some tomb, that though someday your body returns to the dust from whence it came, do you know today that even as Christ arose, you too also will rise again. That promise is offered to all who will receive it. It's why we today celebrate the resurrection of Jesus because he validated his claim, whoso believeth in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. I was 17 years old when I received the greatest promise ever given. And that was a promise that what happened to Jesus happened to me. And I accepted Christ's gift of life eternal. Someday they'll put my body in the ground, but I will be absent from my body and I will be present with the Lord. You say, well, how do you know that? Because he's already made good with the proof of his promise. He rose again from the dead and he will come again to claim his own. If you've never received Jesus Christ as yours, what a glorious day to call out to him and be saved. And if you are saved, may I strongly encourage you, hold fast to the promises of God. No word of his promise will ever be retracted. They are as powerful for you today as the day that they were made. Every promise in the book is mine.